0: Bibles, or you can turn your Bibles on, open the app, whatever you're using, and we're going to be in First John today. If you've got one of the Bibles that we provide, that'll be on page one thousand and twenty-one. One thousand and twenty-one. How ironic! If you guys were here last month, I preached a sermon on technology. Anybody remember that one? I did say technology is um, is still, you know, the fall effects technology. So um, as Dan's mentioned, we, uh, I mean, we, we've we had some computer issues the past few weeks. Actually, we've got a brand new computer, um, but we don't own our own space. And so we're actually limited in how much time that we have in here and figuring this out. But I, I know this, I love our guys um, that work with our AV team. We'll get it figured out. Today, we don't have um, PowerPoint or projection behind us, so um, things that I would have shared with you or to help you, I'll, I'll walk us along um, and maybe slow down at times, um, but uh, I just wanted you to know we know it's an issue, and we'll keep working on that because I know it's a uh, it's way that enhances, enhances and, and helps everybody um, be unified in our worship. Well, today, we're continuing this sermon series through 1 John, and uh, before we jump into the text, let me just I want to see, how many people love tests? Like, man, I just love taking tests. I don't see any. Oh, I got a, there we go. I see one in the back back there. Um, Hey, you know, this has been a a little fresh on my mind recently um, because my daughter Ava just started sixth grade. And in middle school... Things start ramping up a little bit more versus elementary school. So I've heard her talk about some quizzes, some exams. I know we got, we got our rows of college students back here. I don't know, is it midterm? Are we getting close? Always. Yes, always. Thank you, Ben Kim. Um, always midterms. So, uh, you know, exams in school, they're testing our knowledge. I've been thinking this week about different types of tests. Any of you remember, like, going through the test to get your driver's license? Like, some of us remember that because it goes back to, like, for me, that was like a big day. Like, uh, when you turn the right age, and then you can go and you can get your license. You've been studying. You've been practicing. And then you actually go, and you have to take a physical test. And then you actually have to go drive and, and show that you can take that knowledge of what you've displayed of these signs and actually implement it in your life. And, and so you pass that. Others may think of tests like maybe with a doctor. Maybe you've been to the doctor this week, and they run, a, they run tests on us to discern the health of our bodies. Well, along those same, same lines, what we have here in First John is a series of tests. Now, I know nobody raised, like, like I don't want our attitude to be that way towards First John. Like, nobody, we, we got a one hand raised towards test. but But really, his test here, his goal isn't that we fail. His goal is that it, it actually gives us confidence. It gives us assurance. I want you to, real briefly, we're, we're going to be in the beginning part of 1 John, but I want you to turn to the end with me real quick. Go to chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. For those of you that were with us when we preached through the gospel of John, you may remember that the same author of 1 John wrote the gospel of John, and, and his purpose there was primarily very evangelistic. I write these things so that you would believe. In Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. That was his purpose statement in John 20, verses 30 and 31. When we come to 1 John, he gives us a similar purpose statement, and it's found in verse 13 of chapter 5. And he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see the difference The Gospel of John, I write these things so that you may believe. He he was trying to persuade with them. He's going through all of these signs that Jesus did, who's pointing to Jesus being the Son of God, and he's pleading with them to believe and have life. Now he's writing from a more pastoral perspective. Notice what he says here. I write these things to you who believe. His confidence is that they actually believe in what's his purpose, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose of this letter was to lead believers to a full understanding and assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here's how he does that. How does he lead them to know that they have eternal life? He does it through a series of tests. And really, this letter is test after test after test, really a mirror for them to hold up and to look at their lives. And his hope is that that it would say that, yes, you have eternal life. And so that was one of the primary purposes that he's written this letter. It was to assure believers of their right standing with God. But additionally, there's a second secondary purpose, and it was to expose and rebuke hypocrisy and false religion. You see, here's what had happened. False teachers had crept into the church, and they were teaching doctrines that were not consistent with the character of God and who Jesus Christ is. And, And what was at stake here if they believe these false teachers was, in fact, their own eternal life. And so here's why, here's why this is important for us. Not just our passage today, but really this whole letter. I mean, we're in a similar boat. We profess, many of us here would profess, hey, I'm a believer, and he's writing that we would have assurance that, that we would know that we have eternal life. But maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I'm, I'm not sure I'm in the camp of those who would believe, man, you're right in here with us because you're going to be looking at, well, what is a Christian? He's going to be giving us tests that really say this is what, what characterizes a follower of God. And so before we jump in, I just want to pray again with us. And here's what I want us to pray. I want us to pray that God would sharpen our theological rigor. Like We want to think rightly about who God is, about who we are, and who Jesus is. Second, we want to pray because a lot of what we're going to see here is not just what you believe, it's actually how you live. That we would think rightly about our ethical living, like how we're actually following Jesus Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, at the workplace, in my home, wherever. Like, God, help us to see how what we believe about you plays out in how we live our life. And then third that there would just be a fervent pursuit to know Jesus in all of life. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to illumine our minds, to receive your word. We need, we need your help to, to, to think, to know rightly about yourself, about us, and about Jesus, and then how that actually fleshes itself out in every, every square inch of our life. God, we need your help today. Spirit, Lord, would you move? We pray in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. All right, let's flip back. Let's go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Our, our passage today, we're going to be looking at verses 5 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. Let me read those. This is what the Word of God says. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole World, You probably noticed the flow of this passage. John first begins with the character of God. God is light. In him there is no darkness. No, no darkness at all. It's going to begin with us understanding who God is. And then secondly, he moves to help us understand who we are. And there's a, a series of formulas. If we say, if we say, if we say. And they're all addressing our understanding of sin, he follows that up with, but. In other words, if we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, and then he follows that up with, but if we walk in the light. So you have these counterclaims. If we say, but if. If we say, but if. If we say, but if. If we say but if and he's going to address some of these errors that they were believing and, and, and following in relation to their understanding of sin, and then finally, we see him turn to the nature and work of Christ. We see it sprinkled throughout, but real in verses one and two of chapter two, we see him turn to hey, if anyone sins, you have a helper, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for your sin. And so here's where we're headed today, real simple. I'm gonna walk through each of those three sections. We're gonna look at the nature and character of God. We're gonna look at understanding ourselves and sin rightly, and then we're gonna conclude by looking at the nature and work of Christ. And I believe what's happening here is that there are three questions. As we think of this as a test, there are three questions that we all, including myself, Need to wrestle with, and the first one is this related to the nature of God. Do you tremble at the radiance and holiness of God? Don't say it again. I know we don't have the screen back here. I want to make sure you're locked in here with me. Do you tremble at the radiance and holiness of God? Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard. Jesus told us this. This isn't something that we've created. Jesus, this is the message that we have heard. Jesus told us this. We've heard from him and we declare to you. And, and this is the trajectory for understanding not just this passage, but in a, in a lot of ways, this whole first part, first half of, the, of this letter. And it's this. God is light in him, there is no darkness, no, no darkness at all. Did, did you hear me there? If you were to peek into the Greek, there's like a double negative here. In him, and that's why the not at all like has been added there. In him, there is no darkness, no, no, absolutely no. There is no darkness at all. When John says this, he is affirming God's holiness and moral Purity. J.I. Packer, in his short little concise theology, he says it this way. Listen up, since I don't have the screen back there. He says this. He says, this word holiness signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him the object of all adoration and dread to us. It covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection, and check this, and thus is an attribute of all of his attributes. In other words, if God's loving, it is holy love. Like, it is the the totally other, the greatness of God in all of his attributes, Packer continues, pointing to the godness of God at every part. So on one hand, as we, as we see God as light and we see in John presenting God as moral purity, like w- one of the verses in Habakkuk says this, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. This is a God who, who hates sin because of his holiness. We're gonna see later his wrath, which is, which is God's holy hatred, against everything that is unclean and unpure. Check this out. In the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. And that, you're gonna see the implications trickle down. If God is light, what implications does that have on his image bearers? Would it make sense that we would walk in light? Another way to say this, you see it in 1 Peter. He says, be holy as God is holy. If God is light, we as his image bearers should be living and walking in the light, reflecting the holy God that who he is. But here's what happens. The image that we were created to reflect an image forth has been drastically stained as a result of the fall and so as i've been reflecting this week like how do we like we hear these words god is light like how does that just have a have an impact on us, how does that shake us? How does that rock us in such a way that it did in Isaiah 6? If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I'm just going to read the first five verses in Isaiah 6. This is where he describes his encounter with the holiness of God. I hear you turning, so I'll give you a second, I'll let you get there. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes his vision of the Lord, and he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the th- thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, check this, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What was Isaiah's response to the holiness of God? Woe is me for I am lost. And I, I'm tempted just to linger here because I really believe if the holiness of God shakes us, what we're about to discuss about sin will take care of itself. He of unapproachable light. How do you respond to the holiness of God? you know what my concern is that and i'm i'm not talking just as a church but just as a as a people just as a culture like where where is the holiness of god and reverence like do we just do we just look over sin or or does how frequently does this response happen? Woe was me, I am a man of unclean lips. I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What John is doing to these believers is saying, you've got to think rightly about God, and God is a God of unapproachable light. He is light, and there is no darkness. In other words, and we're about to see it in a second, Man, if this is who God is, it changes the way you live if you want to be a follower of God or if you want to claim to have fellowship with God. So given this understanding of who God is, let's jump in to these other two sections. Because a correct view of sin is going to begin with a right understanding of the holiness of God. So here's our second question. Our second question relates to understanding humans and sin. And and here's what it is. So if the first one is, do you tremble at the radiance and and holiness of God? The second is, do you have a right attitude towards sin? We're going to see this in verses 6 to 10. Do you have a right attitude towards sin? These false teachers had minimized The the seriousness of sin. And what John does in these if we say statements three times, he's going to highlight three errors that we should avoid when it comes to thinking rightly about sin. And the first one is this. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, don't love sin. Don't love sin. Look at the text. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, I'm back in 1 John now. If we say we have fellowship with him, let me just hit pause here. Here's what's happening here. Sometimes you may hear people talk about, are you in fellowship with God or not? Like as if you can be sometimes in fellowship with God and sometimes out of fellowship with God. The The way he's using this here, he's using fellowship to basically describe if you say you have eternal life, He's talking about fellowship with God in an, in an absolute sense where, man, you have eternal life. If you, so, so when you think about that word fellowship, don't think about, man, am I in fellowship today or not? I think sometimes we may even use the, our language, that may not be as sharp as we should there. Think of eternal life. If we say we have fellowship, if we say we have eternal life, if we say we've been saved... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This word walk here, it's used figuratively to describe the way you go about your life. And it's a present tense verb. So w- w- what he's getting at here is, is if you say you have fellowship, God, but the pattern of your life, if you walk In darkness. In this word, darkness, we could go back and see how he used it in in the Gospel of John. This just refers to everything moral perversity, everything that is unclean, sin. Okay, you guys follow me? If you say you have eternal life, but the practice of your life, the way you live, is a life of just living in continual, habitual sin, you lie. And do not practice the truth. You hear me? You hear what he's saying? Let me me try to, I'm going to give about five different ways he could have rephrased this. They were habitually engaged in sinful conduct. They were consciously abiding in sin. They were deliberately keeping on sinning. They were happily making sinning their practice. Their life was characterized by a life of sin. They loved sin. The picture that's painted here is someone who's claiming to be a believer. If we say, I'm saying, I've got got fellowship with the God of light, Do you you guys hear that? I've got fellowship with the God of unapproachable light, but the way I live my life is a life of darkness. He says you're a liar. That's not me. Again, we're looking through these tests here. Here's what's going on. There were people who were saying you could be righteous without actually practicing righteousness. They were saying you could have fellowship with God and it didn't matter how you lived your life. Such a person, he says, he says, we lie and do not practice the truth. Andreas Kustenberger in his theology of John says this it is excluded for anyone to live a dark, immoral life and yet claim to believe in a God who is light. I can see John saying, like, how did you guys get here? Like, if God is light. How could you conclude it would be okay to just live a lifestyle of ongoing habitual willful loving and practicing of sin? Because you know what? Jesus changes people. Like actually, like really. Like we don't we don't just live in the world of of truths We say, no, like, here are tangible ways Jesus has changed my life. When Steve Rath came up a few weeks ago and gave his story, we're not just talking about something intellectually he's believing. Yes, but God's changing his life. And that's my story. And I hope it's your story, that we're not just believing certain truths about God. We're actually claiming that we have been changed. Think about this. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus have to come in the first place? Jesus came to take away sin and destroy the works of Satan. So how can you be a Christian and continue loving the things he came to destroy? That's what John's saying. How can you claim to be a follower of Jesus who came to destroy sin and have fellowship with a God who's a God of light and not addressing what's going on in your own life. And so John Stott in his commentary, he says this, We are right to be suspicious of those who claim a mystical intimacy with God and yet walk in darkness of error and sin, paying no regard to the self-revelation of an all-holy God. Check this, religion without morality is an illusion. Look, I'm not standing up here today to pronounce judgment. All I'm doing is is holding up the word also to my own life. And here's what John's saying. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, it cannot just be in a professing kind of way. It's actually got to be exemplified in how you live your life. And so if you look back, and you know when it's hard to look like, Evaluate hour by hour. But let me just ask you this. Look back over the last year of your life. Is it characterized by walking in darkness or walking in the light? John would say if your answer is walking in darkness, you have no reason to have assurance that you have eternal life. So what's the solution? Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You can't be a Christian and love sin. Rather, John says, instead of walking in darkness, walk in light as he is light. Did you see the argument there? God is light. Walk in light as he is Light. What might that look like? I'll give you a few statements to wrestle with. We increasingly love righteousness or holiness. We habitually engage and live a holy life. We happily make holiness our practice. Our life is increasingly characterized by a life of holiness. We love holiness. We bring all of our sins to light. Here's what happens when you walk in darkness. When you walk in darkness, you try to cover and hide sin. But when you come to the light, and when you see the provision of God in Jesus, you realize you don't have to cover up or hide from sin, because the blood of Jesus, did you see that in verse 7? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. He's provided a provision, but you've got to come to the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The light of the world has come into darkness to bear your darkness so that you could have life. Don't love sin. Love holiness. Second, how are we to have a right attitude towards sin? The second error to avoid is don't deny sin. Verse 8. In verse 8, he says, Going to the second counterclaim. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Don't deny sin. So you've got two, on one end of the spectrum, you've got people that were just walking in sin, walking in darkness. On the other side, you've got those that were completely denying sin. The error would have been denial that sin even exists in our nature. So stated positively, it would be somebody saying, I'm basically inherently good. Have you heard that? Here's the test. If I were to ask you today this question, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? If you say heaven, and I reply, why? And you reply, because I haven't really done anything that bad, and I'm a pretty good person. You fail the test. None of us will be in heaven because... We haven't done anything that bad. The God of light is the God of unapproachable light. Like, once, how many sins did Adam and Eve have to commit to receive death, kicked out of the garden and eternal death? One. If you claim to be sinless or, or or to state it positive, if you claim to be inherently good, you deceive yourself, he says here. And the truth is not in us. We know, as Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the deal. The way to fellowship with God isn't through a denial of sin. That would render Jesus useless. Think about it. How could you benefit from the cleansing effects of the blood of Jesus if you say you have no sin? The very reason he came and died was to pay the penalty for sin. So what's the solution? We find it in verse 9. But, I'm, I'm including that there, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't deny your sin. What is the mark of a Christian? We confess sin. The proper attitude, the the proper Christian attitude towards sin is not denial, but a practice of continual confession of sin, trusting in the blood of Jesus, which is the vehicle of both forgiveness and cleansing. That God has promised. And here's the cool part. God says, if you confess your sins, he is what? He is faithful and just. God has promised to forgive sins because of the blood of Jesus. And he will keep his word. What could lead you with assurance today of eternal life? It's not that you're good. It's God is faithful, and he has provided a son, and his blood was shed, and it cleanses me of my sin, and I believe in Jesus. So if you were to ask me today, John, if you were to die, where would you spend eternity? My answer would be heaven, and it would be, here's what I would say, I would say, God, you don't deserve to let me in. There is nothing good in me that should allow me to enter and come near, even close to your throne. You should let me in because you said if I believed in Jesus, you would forgive me. And so you should let me in because you've said you'll keep your word. And and Jesus is the only reason he was perfect He shed his blood for me and I've placed my faith in him and I'm following him and I'm doing my best to walk in the light. So genuine believers grow. Let me give you a few words here. We grow in recognizing, confessing, and repenting of sin to God. And as we see this grow in our own lives, it should increasingly give assurance of salvation. Now before I move on to the third area, let me just address a, a few questions here. The first one is this. Do I need to confess every single one of my sins in order to be saved? No. If that were the case, none of us would be saved. you know why? Because we commit sin every day that we forget and a lot of times we don't even know a sin. So, So my salvation is not contingent upon me confessing and and bringing to memory every single one of my sins. The second, you may be sitting here thinking, okay, it says if we confess our sins, like, am I forgiven or not? Because it says if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So like, is forgiveness something that's still to come or, or have I been forgiven? Because I read in other parts of scripture that say, You've been forgiven. In fact, look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you little children because your sins, what's it say? Are forgiven in the past. So here's this tension in John. Your sins are forgiven, and yet we still have to confess, and when you confess, you will be forgiven. So why do we have To confess, let me, before I answer that, let me say this. When you initially hear the good news of Jesus, which talks about the holiness of God and how there's judgment on sin, and yet you are a sinner and you believe you're a sinner and you confess your sin and then you believe in Jesus and you ask for forgiveness. Like when I was initially, when I was born again, when I was saved, I was completely forgiven of all of my sins, past, present, and future. It wasn't like I was just forgiven of the sins that I had committed up to that point. God even sees into my future and the sins I will commit, and those were all paid for by Jesus on the cross. So in that sense, I'm forgiven, and it's based on the Word of God. But why do we still need to confess our sin? Well, here's why. Confessing our sin is the opposite of saying we have no sin. So if if he's saying in in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, what would be the opposite? How would you like, okay, I don't want to do that. What would it look like? It would be to say, I do have sin. And it would be to confess it. So continual confession is a way for us to habitually walk in the light. The way we walk in the light, we confess sin. We don't walk in darkness and cover up sin. We don't deny sin either. We confess sin. Sin, it's a way for John to say, say this, daily, be aware of your sinfulness. Take note of your sins. Be grieved by your sins. Don't hide them. Bring them to God and let the blood of Jesus cover them. But in another, I would say, relational sense, here's the deal. Sin is always against a person. When I watch my boys fight, like I think this, this morning, I even heard this, and one of them just nailed me in the back. My kids are sinners. They need Jesus. You know, just praying for that. There was sin, one boy against another boy. What's gotta happen? Like, we're in a family, we're committed to loving and forgiving one another, but what? There's a relationship that's broken until what? Until there's confession. And so, what I do, I tell, I tell my kids, you go say, I'm sorry. And then, second, you say, "Will you forgive me?" And the goal is to restore the relationship. We forgive, and we're restored. So, in a relational way, I love how um, I love how John Piper puts it this way. Give me one second. I got to find my notes here. I got a little lost. He says, "The price of forgiveness was paid once for all. The application to particular sins in our lives is experienced." day by day. We add nothing to the purchase. Did you hear that? The price, it was paid. All of your sins are forgiven. The way we appropriate that and apply that to individual sins in a relational sense is day by day. When we see our sin, we're grieved by it, we confess it. And so here's the second error to avoid. Don't deny deny sin. You cultivate a practice of recognizing, seeing, confessing, and repenting, of sin. Third error. Don't claim to be perfect and incapable of sinning. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, this is similar to verse 8 where he says, if we say we have no sin. The claim here is that, okay, maybe there was sin up until my profession of faith, but now I'm incapable. It's, it's, it's a, a proclamation of perfectionism. I have We have not sinned, and I'm incapable of sinning from this day forward. That would be a false righteousness. Here's the deal. Even as Christians, we will wrestle with sin until we meet Jesus. And so there's some tensions here, right? What are the tensions? I realize that I'm going to wrestle with sin until I meet Jesus. Like, I'm not going to be glorified and perfect until either he returns or I see him face to face. And yet, at the same time, John says, don't walk in darkness. Like, we don't just concede that, okay, well then, since I'm not going to be perfect, it's okay to just continue in sin. That's not what he says. If that's your attitude, he says you fail the test. And so we hold these tensions let me. i got to move on, or they're going to cut my mic off. All right, the last truth. So we've talked about the, the character of God. We've talked about understanding a right attitude towards sin. And then, and then here's the third question. Do you daily fix your eyes on Jesus as the only provision for your sin? I'll say it again. Do you daily fix your eyes on Jesus as the only provision for your sin? Here's the cool part about this passage. What we see here is the holiness of God and the love of God come together. The holiness of God would lead God to say, the wrath, my wrath is gonna be poured out on you. You deserve judgment, but the love of God says, I'm gonna make a provision and I'm gonna save you. And what we see here is John highlights three aspects of why Jesus is the only provision for our sin. And the first one is this, his righteous character. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and here's the title. Who's the advocate? Jesus Christ, the Righteous. What John's doing here is he's making explicit the basis by which Jesus can take our place. Why is Jesus the only provision? Because there is no one righteous, no not one, except for Jesus. He is the righteous one. He is without sin. And so he is able to say, I'm going to take their sin because I'm without sin. He is the perfect substitute and sacrifice for our sin. Another way to say this would be Jesus is the light of the world. In him was life. The light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. He has come from the God of light, and he is light, and he is our only provision. So his righteous character, second... His propitiatory death. I remember writing a whole paper on this in seminary. So, I mean, I could, spend, I could spend a little bit of time here, but I won't, okay? But I've got to move fast. Maybe that might even be a further coffee that we grab on the side and talk about this word propitiation that we see here in verse 2. He is the propitiation. Propitiation. What does this mean? It's a word that shows up four times in all of the New Testament, Romans 3.25, right here in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it's where it's tied to the whole the love of God, and then in Hebrews 2.17, it's a word that, that's been debated, but I'll give you a definition that that I really believe that John is after here and is consistent with all of Scripture, and it's this. What is propitiation? Uh, A propitiation is a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God. A sacrifice that bears the wrath of God. If you're reading from an NIV, you might even see, you're not even going to see the word propitiation. It's going to say atoning sacrifice. What does this mean? Well, here's the deal. Shortly... When we sin, for me to have eternal life, there are two things that gotta happen. One, my, my sin's gotta be dealt with. I'm a sinner. How, how am I, a sinner, gonna spend eternal life with a God of unapproachable light, the God who is light? But the second thing, because God is holy, when I sin, how does He respond? What does the Holy God do towards sin? He hates sin, and so when you read through the Bible and you see God's wrath being discussed, we actually sing about it earlier in Christ alone. He satisfied the wrath of God. when we sing that, we're saying Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath bearing sacrifice or. I like this. It helps me visually. He is the wrath-exhausting sacrifice. A lot of times in the scriptures, you'll see the wrath of God talked about a cup, the cup of God's wrath. So just imagine I should have brought my coffee cup here. But imagine this coffee cup, and, and I've got my sin, and the way God responds to my sin as a holy God who hates sin is his wrath. So if, if I'm going to be reunited to God, my sin's got to be taken care of and his wrath has to be satisfied. Here's what happened on the cross. When Jesus died, it was more than just physical pain. I would say the physical pain that he went through, the crown of thorns, the nails, the agony, was only the tip of the iceberg of Jesus bearing the wrath of God, the cup was poured out and he drank every last drop. That's why Jesus in the garden, he's saying, Father, if there's a way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, your will be done. And that's why he's in so much agony in the Garden of Gethsemane that it even describes his his sweat like like drops of blood that were coming from him. He knew on the cross he was going to bear the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Jesus drank every last drop. And I can hear John say this. For those of you that want to continue to walk in darkness, do you not see what Jesus has done for you? You deserved to drink the agony of God's wrath for all eternity, but Jesus has said, I'll give me the cup. I'll drink it. Give them life. So every time we continue to walk in darkness, we're basically saying to Jesus, man, it doesn't matter what you did on the cross. And so John continues, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I don't, I don't have a ton of time to jump in here, I'll just say this, that most likely what was gone on is, is that there was false teaching that was excluding others from the scope of Salvation. And so you hear John saying here, look, look, this salvation, look, this isn't something that we are to keep to ourselves. This is a salvation that is for, that is for the world. It's, it is for the nations. Like like we're not going to be exclusive with this salvation. And so we have a great Savior, his propitiatory death. I've got to move on. Third, his heavenly advocacy. I skipped over a word that I'm going to come back to real quick as I wrap up. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Another way to say this is we have a helper. Guys, this is good news. Right now and forevermore, do you know who's at the right hand of God? Who's there? It's Jesus. Do you know what He's doing? He is interceding on our behalf. Father, I died for that one. His sins are forgiven. He's mine. He always lives to make intercession for us, is what Hebrews 7 says. And so, as we do battle with sin, Jesus is our only provision. Neutrality isn't impossible. There is none other, if if you acknowledge your sin, there is none other in the whole earth that you can find that will make provision to restore you to God. Jesus is God's provision. If you haven't bowed the knee to the holiness of God and the provision of Christ, would you do that today? And it's really simple. And yet it's hard. It goes like this, God, I'm a sinner. And you are a God of unapproachable light. I have no reason to be in your presence. I deserve your punishment and your wrath. God, would you forgive me? for rebelling against you, for sinning against you in many countless ways that I can't even collect all of them and probably in ways that I don't even know. And God, would you forgive me because of Jesus? God, you say in your word that Jesus was the the wrath-bearing sacrifice and that He died for me. I believe in that. God, would you be faithful to your word and forgive me. I'm turning from my sin and help me to walk in light. Amen. That's what it means to bow the knee. It's to acknowledge the holiness of God, to confess your sin and turn from it, and believe in Jesus. That is the only way you will pass the test. Of eternal life. And you know what about this test? It's not about how great we are. It's about how great God is. And so this is our point. That I want you to remember. Walk in light. As God is light. Trusting. His provision. In Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and you are good. And I know that because you've displayed that in your love for us in sending Jesus. God, I pray even this week, we would wrestle with the holiness of God. That you would increasingly help us bear the awe and adoration and dread of, of the God of unapproachable light. And yet also, God, help us to see our sin rightly. God, our tendency oftentimes is to minimize our sin. But God, God would you help us to see it for what it is? God, help us not to walk in darkness. Help us not to deny sin. God, help, help us bring it to the light. Even as we grow in closer and closer to you, the God of light, God, even as our sin is increasingly exposed, God, I pray that Jesus will become much more of a treasure to us because his death far outweighs our sin. And my sin can never outweigh or outdo the provision of Christ. So God, help us daily look to him. God, may that spur us this week to turn from current sins that we are walking in to walk in light, and that increasingly you would give us an assurance that we are your children and that we are headed towards eternal life. God, we thank you for Christ. We pray that in Christ's name.